Well, good morning and welcome again to In Town. We're glad that you're here in worship with us, and I hope that you and your family, if you have one, is uh, having a wonderful Advent season thus far. We've chosen to go through a study of the Psalms and looking at various ways, various aspects of the human life that the Psalms compel us to pray. And this morning, we're looking at Psalm 8 that compels us to pray our purpose. And let me read this Psalm for us, and then we'll pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the path of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thanks be to God. Sorry. (laughs) Father, we thank you for these psalms of hope. May they be that for us this morning. Would you bring us hope in our lives? Would you bring hope to our church? Would you bring hope to the city through this church and through our individual lives, giving testimony to you? Would you visit us, Lord? Lord, would you you be especially close this morning to those who are hurting, those who are lonely, those who are afraid, those who are hopeless? As you are mindful of us, would you make your way into our hearts and lives, especially those of us who are wandering and hurting? Would you make us mindful of you as you are mindful of us? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at, uh, the, as I said, a series on the Psalms, which is the ancient prayer book of the Jewish and the Christian faith. And they're very ancient prayers. Some of them are older than others, but as a whole, they're some of the oldest writings that we have in the Bible. And yet, we see throughout the Psalms, and particularly this one, they deal with a very modern problem. They deal with very modern questions. Is the world that I inhabit random? Is it arbitrary? Is it indiscriminate? Or is there a designer? Is there a creator? Is there a personal God behind what we see and feel in this world that gives order, that gives coherence, that gives meaning? These are very ancient questions. They're very modern, very pertinent questions. And related to that, We have to ask, and this psalm asks, well, what am I doing here? What kind of purpose, what kind of meaning, what kind of identity do I have in light of that previous question? Now, not everyone asks them in that order, of course, but everyone is asking these questions in some form or another. And what question did David ask here? What are mere mortals? What is man, as the older translations have it, that you, God, would be mindful of me? What am I 
God, that you would be mindful of me? What is it about me, God, that you should be intrigued, that you should be enchanted, that you should be interested, that you should be loyal to me? And what we realize, though this is a great question, a universal question, that pretty quickly we realize that any sufficient answer to that question would go some way forward in answering the question of what is or who is God? What is it about God that makes him mindful of me? The two questions presume one another. When you ask one, you're asking the other. When you're arriving at certain conclusions to one, you're arriving at certain conclusions to the other. And Psalm, give, Psalm 8 gives us a very definitive answer to both. In our culture, it's a very contrarian answer. But if we'll listen, if we'll listen well, they're good answers. They're hopeful answers. They're purposeful, meaningful answers. In fact, the answers that David gives us are announcements of good news. We're going to look just at two things here this morning. We're going to look at the meditation that David has in this psalm that's a recording of his meditation, and then the mission that that implies. First of all, meditation. This is, in fact, a contemplation. It's a prayer of worship. It's a conversation that David is having with God. Consider your heavens, God, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, the work of your fingers. If the universe is the size of North America, if you think about it on that scale, then our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is impossibly huge, which is unbelievably expansive, If the universe is the size of North America, the Milky Way is the size of a coffee cup. And the earth would be not even visible within that coffee cup. It would just be a speck. In our day, it's not assumed, of course, that the universe points to a creator. With all its grandeur, with all its beauty, with all of its expansiveness, people are coming to different conclusions that perhaps that beauty, that grandeur, that expanse doesn't actually need a creator, that it could start out of nothing. And uh, Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, and others are coming to that conclusion that you can have a universe out of nothing. The beauty, symmetry, grandness of the universe is not a reason to meditate, to worship. It just is. It just exists. In David's day, of course, it was more of an assumption that there was some creative intelligence, however that may be defined, behind the creation of the cosmos. But you see, David is going much farther than that. He's going beyond arguing simply that all of creation is the work of a great designer. He says it's the work of God's fingers. What does that mean? It means, on one hand, that it's simple for God to make the whole world. It doesn't even take all of his power. He makes it with his fingers. But there's something more that that term is conveying. What he is saying is that what do you use your fingers to do? Use your fingers to create, to make a model. The universe, in other words, is the work of a designer, of an artist, of a craftsman. The medium is the message that David is arguing that there's something very specific behind creation, that God, who in laying out the boundaries of creation, had in mind a very specific message that the creation, that the stars, that you yourself would be a message about who God is, that it's an announcement of sorts. And that's what 
an artist does. When an artist creates, he or she is thinking about what does this convey? What does the form, what does the content say, not only about me, but about creation, about something that's important? And that's what the creation is. It is a message. It's an announcement. And what is an announcement of? In verse 1, David says, you have, in making all of this, God, you have set your glory above. God is making the world not for himself alone, but wants to communicate through what he has made to the people that he's made. The universe declares the glory of God. As far as I know, no culture has been discovered yet that doesn't have some sort of questing for ultimate reality at its center, at least somewhere within its mythology and its story. All cultures are asking, where do we come from? How did this get here? Why is there something rather than nothing? And if you poke around in ancient mythology, you'll find that they generally conceive of, at least in ancient mythology, that creation is the result of some great battle, some great struggle where a particular god has won out over his enemies. Here, however, creation is not the result of some great general or warrior, but an artist, a craftsman someone who loves beauty, someone who is creating things to communicate. For David, everything that God has created has been done, has been created in a way to communicate. It's an artistic expression of truth and ultimate reality. Creation is a message to mankind to say, this is who I am, and this is who you are, and I want relationship. He's not just drawing a distinction that is saying, As God, he is holy and majestic and wholly separate from us as people, wholly different. He wants to bridge that gap. He wants to bring you to himself. He wants to bring us to himself. And what does our passage say? That mankind was made a little lower than the heavenly beings. In other words, there's a distinction. There's a distance between human beings and God. They've been made a little lower. They're not God. We're not God, but crowned, crowned with glory and honor. That human beings, that you are crowned with glory and honor. Christianity has used this passage for centuries to build this very high anthropology that every life has value and worth. And no matter how insignificant, how unlovely, how forsaken you feel, that God considers you royalty that he considers you a king or a queen and wants to have relationship with you. But there's something more going on, not just that human beings are beauty, beautiful and worth, worthwhile. They have worth, intrinsic worth. There's something more. Notice what comes next. You crown them with glory and honor, and you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swam, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Now, most commentators will argue that what David is doing is meditating on Genesis 1 and 2, part of which we read earlier. Did you notice the synchronicity? Did you notice how similar they were? That we see the same beauty in the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. We see the special status of mankind, that mankind, male and female, are royalty in God's world. They're given regal status, and they are to represent him and his intentions on the earth. 
But what goes wrong? David is meditating on Genesis 1 and 2, and we see this beautiful, faultless, spotless creation. But then what world does David inhabit? What world do we inhabit? David is constantly on the run, constantly asking God, where are you? Why are you not present? Why are the enemies surrounding me? And I'm sure that you, you ask questions much like that, maybe in different terms. We see Genesis 1 and 2 quickly turn into Genesis 3, where mankind uses this special status, this royalty, this authority that God has invested in them to actually walk away from him, to be their own lords and masters. And in that moment, sin and discord and injustice and brokenness and evil begin to infect the world like a virus. God made the universe with his very fingers. That's all it took. It didn't take everything he was. He didn't rest because he was tired and spent out of power. He made the universe with only his fingers. And yet, the world we inhabit is broken and fallen and seems to be falling to pieces. There's a God who is so powerful as to make the universe, and yet, in our little tiny speck of it, Disorder and disunity seem to reign. Our world, our lives seem to be falling apart. Everything that is good and lovely needs constant maintenance and attention. How is that possible? What's going on? Humanity is made a little lower than the divine. They're not God, but they are given the responsibility to act on his behalf. One of the things that good leaders do, or at least try to do, is that they tie together authority and responsibility because they go hand in hand. They must go hand in hand. If someone on the team wants authority, they have to be willing to take on responsibility as well. When someone, when you give someone responsibility to carry it out, carry out a task, you have to give them the authority to actually carry it out. If they keep coming back to you to check in, you haven't tasked them with authority. You've just given them responsibility, and it's frustrating. Now, this works great until it doesn't. It gives people dignity and value and says, you matter to me. I'm going to invest not only, I'm not just going to give you responsibility, but I'm going to give you the authority to carry it out. It works until it doesn't, and it's also very risky because when you give someone the authority that they need to do a job, you're also giving them the authority and the responsibility and the opportunity to mess things up. God creates this beautiful world and then grants us, fickle humans, with the ability to rule on his behalf. He gives not only the responsibility, but he gives the authority to mess it up. And what happens? We do. His emissaries, his kings and queens, if you will, walk away from him. We take up our authority that has been invested into us, it has been donated to us, and we use it on our own behalf. We use it to rule over other people in very destructive ways. We serve our own interests with the authority that God has given to his creation. And that's the story of Genesis. That's the story that the Bible keeps telling over and over. And that's why you can read this glorious Psalm 8. And then you can look at another psalm, perhaps 73, where David is surrounded and he's saying, where are you, Lord? Why do the unjust rule? We see Psalm 6, how long, O Lord, will you let this stand? How long until you come and make it right? 
as it was before. What's going on in the world, what has gone on in the world, is something like a computer virus. If you get a computer a virus on your computer, the underlying code of the operating system still works. The, the system is still valid, the operating system. The keyboard often still works. You can open programs and you can create stuff, but everything seems a little bit off balance. Everything seems a little bit slower than it once was. Every action takes a little bit more deliberate. You need to do constant maintenance on your every action on that computer, and then once in a while, you have this great big crash where your computer just goes to a blue screen or goes blank. Everything crashes because that virus has shown up in a very acute way. When we pray the Psalms, we are taking up language that says, though our lives, though our world is marred with hurt, with evil, with injustice, with alienation, though there is clearly a virus of sin that is infecting everything that we do, that muddies the waters, that slows things down, that causes crashes in our own individual lives and in the world. We are taking up prayer language to say that nonetheless, there's an underlying unity, there's an underlying rationality of beauty, of symmetry in this world that points to the way things were and points to the way things ought to be. There's a great designer, a great artist who is still in ultimate underlying control. Did you notice the first verse and the last verse? They're exactly the same. They begin and end the same way the psalm does. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Those are the brackets. And in Hebrew poetry, those bracket the the whole passage. You're supposed to read them in light of the very beginning and the very end. And what is the writer, what is David saying there? Is he is saying that nothing is not within those brackets. Nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing in your life takes place without his divine movement. What comes to you is for you. What Psalm 8 is saying is not that the world is coherent and therefore you can control your life. No, no, no. That's not it at all. It's that there is one in control, that there are brackets to your life. There are brackets to the world that even though this virus has infected, your life has infected the world, that God's name, that God's power, that God's rule is still in place. The operating system is still working and there is a future to be revealed. Not only does it tell us that, however, it tells us another thing. It says, as I alluded to before, that God is personal, he's relational, he knows your name, he knows your story, and he invites you into relationship with him. O Lord, our Lord. We can say, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know the story that sin is going to wreak upon the havoc that sin is going to wreak upon my life continually. I don't know what the future holds, but God does. And he knows my name. Not only is he in control, not only is he majestic, not only is his name and his power upholding all things, but he's personal and he's loving and he wants relationship. Now, one more thing. We talked about meditation. This is 
David's meditation about what is true of God and what is true of the world and what that tells us about our times, that they're in between times, that there's an already established of what God has done and is doing, but there's a not yet. There's something that has not been fully consummated and confirmed. He's meditating upon what that tells him about the majesty and beauty and loveliness of God as well as what it tells him about himself, that he is made in God's image and that God wants relationship with him. That's his prayer. That's his meditation. That's his contemplation. But in the scriptures, meditation always leads to life. It always instructs life. It's not, never meant to just say, wow, that's great, and then move on. No, it changes your story. It changes the way that you live. It instructs life. Contemplation is never just contemplation. It moves you into the story of God. It moves you into, to keep our M, meditation, it moves you into mission. And let me end with this, this last point, which is shorter than the first. You'll be thankful. The mission of humanity, the mission of Christians. Well, what does that depend on? It depends on how we answer who is God and who or what am I? Now, this debate has been, or there has been a debate raging for a number of decades now about, are ethics possible without God? Are morals, are absolute morals that are universal, are they possible without a creator, without an absolute accountability? And for years and for decades, the, those on more of the secular end of things would say, yes, we can create morals, we can have ethics based upon human consent and common consent and so forth, or other ways. But even secularists are now coming to the conclusion that, in fact, you can't, that you can't have ultimate universal ethics and morals if there is not an ultimate in the universe, if there's not an ultimate account- accountability. John Gray, who's a a London University professor, Steven Pinker at Harvard, and other public intellectuals are coming to the conclusion that if there is no God, then why live for anything at all? Why believe in or promote human rights if there's not ultimate reality? If there's not, then just do what you want, because the cosmos doesn't, doesn't care. They invoke sort of this pure, pristine Darwinism to say that every perspective from which humans appear as anything more than just a genetic accident, that humans are basically a highly destructive species. John Gray in his book Straw Dogs calls us homo rapians, a species that exterminates other species at a phenomenal rate. They say basically, no one's going to remember what you do, so shoot people if you want. Shoot yourself if you want, or give yourself away to orphans, and give your life away, and give your money away, but who cares? It doesn't ultimately matter, because there's no final accounting. These are secular voices that are giving answers to the questions that we began with. What is God, and what is man? And how you answer that informs how you live, and how you interact with other people, and how you treat other people. What is man, David says, that thou art mindful of him? That's the King James Version. What are mere mortals that thou, that you are mindful of us, God? And the son of man 
that you care for him. Now, our translations, the new ones, say care. But if you go back to the King James, to the older translations, they have a word. It's a little bit hard to pronounce. I had to practice it. But it's, what are we? What, are, what is man that we fill your mind and that you visiteth us? You are so great and vast, and the universe is so small to you, and yet we fill your minds, yet you step into our lives and rescue us. Care is less intentional. It's less strong than what the word is. The word is visit or visiteth us if we're in the 16th century. That means, God, you are so great that the universe is but the work of your fingers, and yet you step in to rescue us. You visit us with your grace You step into our lives in a personal way. The one person who could snap his fingers and destroy us instead steps in and loves us. That's what the writer is getting at with the word visit, with care. He steps in and rescues us. Now, how do we know this? How do we see this ultimately? And Advent Christmas gives me a softball to hit. That's how we know. That's how we know Advent and Christmas, that Jesus steps into our story, that he visits us. Now, am I just tying a Christian bow on an Old Testament text and making it kind of neat and tidy for Christmas? Or is there reason to believe that that's what David is ultimately thinking about? And we read in Hebrews the very fact they quoted that as if applying to Jesus, the Messiah. And as we read In Luke 1, as we looked last Christmas, last Advent, a year ago, we see the narrative of the coming birth of Jesus. And Zechariah is told by an angel that not only will his son, John the Baptist, be a forerunner of the Messiah, but he says, blessed be the Lord of Israel because he has visited and redeemed his people. How do you know How do you know that he loves you and is willing to step into your life to rescue you? He has visited us in Jesus. Now look at verse 2 of our passage. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and avenger. This is one of the more difficult, perhaps enigmatic parts of the Psalms. But it's the, of, of this psalm, but it's the only part that Jesus quotes. He quotes that. Of all the other parts of this psalm that he could tie into, why does he go here? What is Jesus saying? This world is full of enemies and evil. It's full of foes and injustice. There's a dissonance between what God has created the world to be and what it is. And there's a dissonance between what God has created you to be and who you are. And he says, through the praise of children and infants, that's going to change. That's the big clue. That's the big secret. That's the big reveal that the Messiah is going to come in and change the world through the praise of children and infants. That's how he's going to put an end to evil and injustice. David, of course, looked for a Messiah. He knew that he was a forerunner. He knew that there was another one coming and probably assumed as others did in his day and those leading up to the time of Jesus, that it would be a king like David, 
that the Messiah would be a powerful king that would come on a war horse and overthrow evil by power, by force. But how does Jesus come? He's born in a manger. He's born in poverty. He's born as a vulnerable child who has to flee from the political king. He has to run from the king. And as he grows, as his ministry begins, who comes to him? Who flocks to him? It is the weak, it's the lame, it's the poor, it's the blind, while the powerful, while the religious, while the strong, while the kings want to kill him. He doesn't come in as a political king like Herod or even like David. There's aspects of that. He doesn't come in as a king, a political king, but as a baby. He doesn't come in as a general, but as an artist. The story is full of artistry, that evil to be overthrown by a baby. What better story, what better craftsmanship, what better artistry to a story than you could, could you imagine? This is how God deals with evil. The one who is powerful enough to eradicate evil and destroy evildoers, i.e., you and I, chooses to suffer and die instead. Instead of taking up power, he's overcome by power. He's born in the manger at the beginning of life, and at the end of life, where does he go? He goes to a cross. The start is shameful, born into poverty. He's born in the back of a stable. He doesn't, is not given a royal birth. At the end, he's not given a royal coronation or death ceremony. He's given the death of a slave, the death of a thief. Instead of taking up power, he's overcome by power. What is man, David says, that thou art mindful of him, the son of man, that thou visitest him. Christmas, Advent, friends, says that God is mindful of you, that he doesn't stop thinking about you, that you occupy his mind, that he is mindful of you, and that he visits you, that he brings you salvation. And on the cross, Jesus, God God incarnate, is mindful of you. Can you think about that? Can you consider, can you wrap your head around the fact that Jesus, the one God incarnate who's born in a manger and goes to a cross, and as he is dying a torturous death, you are on his mind? Friends, that's reason to celebrate at Advent. There is dissonance between how God designed the world and what we experience on a daily basis. We see these, this great beauty and yet this terrible, awful brokenness. But it's in this dissonance, it's in this way things ought to be that Christians find their calling, that you know what you're supposed to be doing. Again, we meditate on those great truths, but they should move us into action. They should move you and I into mission. When you experience the gospel, when you experience Jesus saying, I will bring peace in the midst of your personal chaos, when you experience Jesus saying, I will bring healing into the midst of cosmic brokenness, when you personally hear Jesus saying to you, I will bring salvation to you though you have done nothing to deserve it, I will rescue you from your sins, I will be your substitute. 
you'll never be satisfied with the status quo. You'll never be satisfied with the way things are, but you'll be pursuing both in your own life and in the lives of others and in the world around you the way things ought to be. You will bring, as we sung in the very first hymn, Jesus' blessings as far as the curse is found. Wherever the curse is found, that's where Jesus needs to be. And that's what he has called you and I, if you're Christians, into mission with him to do, to bring his blessings as far as the curse is found. You will hear him, if you understand the gospel personally, you will hear him saying, join him in pushing back against all the areas where chaos has triumphed over order and goodness, beginning, first of all, with your own heart, with your own life. That begins by saying, Jesus, I need change. There's chaos in my heart. I've overthrown your rule in my own life and heart, and would you push back against that? Would you change me? Would you make me like you? Would you bring me closer from what I am to where I should be? And as he does that, as he gives you the free gift of grace, you'll be thrilled to join him. Jesus wasn't content to leave you in the status quo. His mind was filled with you so much that he visited salvation upon you at the cost of his own life. Let's celebrate that as we celebrate Advent. And let's pray. Father, I pray that this contemplation, this meditation would make us weep, make us broken, make us realize how far we fall short of you, how much our Our world is marred by the virus of sin, which doesn't stand and exist outside of us, but inside of us, that we contribute to that problem. Would you help us to weep that even so, you have not turned away from us, that you grant us life, that you visit us. Would you visit us again this morning and in our lives as we go about our week? Would you let us not be content simply to meditate and contemplate, but to move towards you just as you've moved towards us and move into our world with your message of visitation, with your message of mindfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.